0: The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S. China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Hello, everyone. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S. China Relations. I'm delighted to welcome here this afternoon for this podcast a policy expert. Strategist and lawyer with many years of experience in government, public affairs, diplomacy, and international business. Mr. Donald Gross, now a senior associate at Pacific Forum CSIS, which is a nonprofit foreign policy research institute affiliated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It's also located in Hawaii, but I spoke to someone you work with there, and he said, alas, he's I not here, and you don't get to, go, don't get to go to Hawaii. That's much. a shame. That's, yeah. that's one of the perks of working for Pacific Forum. You need to change that. Uh, yeah. So we're delighted to have him to talk about the book that he's published called The China Fallacy. Uh, and I'm just going to start out by asking you what motivated you to write the book?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I had been following... Uh, U.S. policy toward Asia for a number of years, and even toward the end of the George W. Bush administration, when we adopted what was called a strategic hedging policy toward China, I was concerned that uh, we were unduly hyping the threat from China and actually stimulating uh, modernization of Chinese military forces that wouldn't otherwise be taking place. And of course, during the first term of the Obama administration, uh, China became a you could say it's a punching bag or a source of real aggravation to the Obama administration, both on economic and political grounds, so that in the fall of 2011, culminated in what was called then the strategic pivot toward Asia, or the rebalancing policy, with a heavy emphasis on movement of US military forces to the Asia-Pacific, which really would amount to an effective containment policy toward China, or you could say an effort to strategically encircle China, and I just felt that not only was, was the policy based on a couple of fallacies on the security and economic side, but it, it certainly wasn't in the best interest of the United States going forward. I, I felt that strongly, and that's really what led me to write the book and to work on it as long as I did.
0: And how long was that?
1: Uh, several years. <laughs> believe it or not. It's longer than I expected it to be, actually. <laughs>
0: The main thesis of your book seems to be that you feel there must be a fundamentally basic shift in U.S. policy, and that both countries need to make an effort to build the foundation for a stable peace by establishing what you call a new paradigm for their relations. Um, so let's start with the fundamental shift that the United States must make. Can you describe, I know it that's basically your whole book. <laughs> no, no, I mean that, no. That. You really
1: you focused on the core of it. The core argument is that we need to move to a new paradigm for U.S.-China relations to achieve, as you said, a stable peace through resolving the uh, fundamental conflicts between the two countries, especially on security grounds, but also in economic areas. Uh, I, in the course of the book, I lay out a, a framework agreement where I uh, describe. A, a process whereby the U.S. and China could uh, fundamentally resolve some of the structural issues between them, but but I am happy to say, and this is one thing I'll be talking about uh, later today, <coughs> that I'm really a, i am really I think we have mostly good news uh, from recent developments in U.S.-China relations. Uh, after the book was written, of course, this book was written, published uh, just about a year ago, but as a result of the summit meeting, the Sunnyland Summit, and. June, then the meetings between very high-level officials in the Treasury and State Departments with their Chinese counterparts oh, in July. We've actually moved to a much better place right now in U.S.-China relations. Uh, it's it's not as far as we need to go, but actually both the two governments, they, based on a Chinese proposal, they've now agreed, Obama and President Xi Jinping, that that there should be a new model for great, what they call a new model for great power relations between the US and China. So they too are talking about a new model for relations. The reason that the Chinese formulated it that way was because of a lot of articles written by, uh, especially people on the right, saying that a war with China by the United States is inevitable. Why is it inevitable? Because is looking back historically to the late 19th century with the rise of Germany, 20th century with the rise of Japan. The argument they make is that when a newly emerging power threatens the dominance of the leading power and therefore threatens the stability of the uh, international system, that leads to war. So the formulation that that China and the US have now agreed on is that, yes, we should have a new model. We do have a new model that we're working on, and the the reason for that model is to avoid this potential for war and to deny, in effect, that it's inevitable. If if there's a new model, it's focused on preventing uh, there being a clash between the U.S. and China and bringing China into the international system as it has been brought in since the early 1980s in the Reagan administration, the George Bush senior administration, uh, the Clinton administration, and, and henceforth. I mean, China was brought into the World Trade Organization. China is a member of a great many multilateral organizations. And so, and Chinese themselves have stressed, as you know, the peaceful rise policy, the notion that they are not a threat to the United States and to other countries, and that they are trying to join the international system. So that's actually the good news. And I would say that since June, uh, up until their last meeting, and continuing, they had a, le- a meeting in St. Petersburg, that G20 meeting, where they reaffirmed their mutual commitment. And there are a lot of specifics that have come out after the summit meeting at this uh, regular meeting called the Strategic and Economic Dialogue to help in the area of military military communications. Uh, That's just one area, a common policy toward North Korea, which really underlay a lot of their desire for cooperation. Both China and the United States see North Korea as a major threat and want to prevent North Korea from expanding its nuclear arsenal. So we all know there was a terrible problem this past spring when the the new leader of North Korea threatened the United States, threatened uh, South Korea. There was a real potential for war. China at the UN for the first time in four years agreed to expand the sanctions that the US had proposed and supported. That was a major signal that China was moving in our direction on North Korea and then the most critical factor was the the new Chinese president emerging, uh, being appointed officially in March. I think that the administration correctly saw that as a great opening to improve relations that had not been very good between President Xi's predecessor and President Obama on a personal level, and then the policies clashed. Uh, so now we have uh, a much better chemistry between the two leaders, but also a more of a, de- a, clearly more of a determined effort to stabilize the relationship. And I would say that since June, we do have a far better relationship with China uh, on both security and on economic issues, uh, but it now needs to get into some of the structural problems like on taiwan and with issues over the south china sea the east china sea that lie are still out there and could severely disrupt the relationship if those issues are not addressed so that's so that's
0: encouraging that you so you see that uh encouraging signs since the sunnylands which i think everyone Agrees. First of all, it's wonderful Mm -hmm. that they got together, it's wonderful they Mm -hmm. did it in a new way, and the Chinese Mm -hmm. were very pleased Mm -hmm. about the fact that the two men were able to sit down, roll up their shirt sleeves. We were very pleased not to have to sit Mm -hmm. through long (laughs) sort of lectures Mm -hmm. about this is the way it's going to be in a very stilted, Mm -hmm. stultifying way. Um, And I think there was great cause for, there was great excitement and great Mm -hmm. cause for thinking that this is going to be different and new. And as you said, we've seen a lot of signs of that. Certainly the mill mill relationship is taking off like gangbusters actually in the past several months. And Mm -hmm. there are other areas that have improved. But a lot of people look at Sunnylands in Mm -hmm. the aftermath and I think are somewhat disappointed because I believe that. Just from discussions with people involved, um, some of the policymakers, there was a hope, a sense that China would be more transparent in certain areas. And instead, the reverse mm-hmm. has happened. I don't think anyone was expecting total political transparency and reform immediately afterwards. But I think people have been surprised by some of the crackdowns on dissidents, the huge issue now over mm-hmm. the big. The bloggers, etc. Um, how do you see issues like that, perhaps throwing a monkey wrench into this? What one would hope would be an ongoing and progressively improved relationship.
1: It's a good question. I, from my standpoint, the specific achievements, not just the rhetoric, the specific measures that. China and the U.S. have agreed to take on on the security side and on the economic side are far better, you know, exceed expectations by a great amount, more than one could have certainly expected a year ago, but even at the beginning of this year. So, uh, to me, the amount of progress that's been made and then, The practical cooperation, whether it's on a bilateral investment treaty on welcoming Chinese investment into the United States, foreign direct investment, the increase in mill-to-mill communication, the cooperation on North Korea, these are things that would have been a fantasy just last fall. Um, My argument has been, and this is one that I make in the book, I strongly believe in supporting the advocates of human rights and democracy in China. And the argument that I make is that by improving the security relationship, we can do more to help the progress of human rights and democracy than almost by any other measure. The reason that that's so is that the forces of repression in China, the domestic security forces, always use the threat of a foreign power, an external threat, to justify and to legitimize their crackdowns on dissent within China. It's something in my book. I. I cite uh, Natan Sharansky, the famous Soviet refusnik, who wrote about this very issue in China and also cited his experience in the Soviet Union. It's well known that authoritarian regimes to justify uh, internal repression always point to an external threat. It happens in North Korea. It happened in the Soviet Union. It happens in China. So my argument has been, and I continue to believe, that if we have a significant improvement on structural issues on the security side, that, that would deprive uh, repressive forces within the Communist Party and other police agencies in China of of the rationale that they use um, I, I, I I am as concerned as, as you and as others are about any uh, crackdown on dissent I, I know that there is has been a more more of a hope for political reform than seems to have materialized the emphasis that that uh, that President Xi Jinping has made has, has been clearly on economic reform, telling the Americans, for example, that there'll be reform of uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, exchange rate reform, uh, they'll loosen restrictions on foreign investment coming to the country. So It seems, my interpretation is that uh, he's, he's a new president, but he hasn't consolidated power in China. It's hard to know where he wants to go. I I, I tend to believe because he was a, personally a victim of the Cultural Revolution, was one of the young people sent down to the countryside and for four or five years labored in obscurity like others. I, I tend to believe because he knows the worst excesses of the Communist Party, uh, he would be more sensitive to the need for political reform. So my interpretation is that I haven't, on the political side, I wouldn't give up on President Xi. I don't like the uh, recent shift and uh, crackdown any more than other proponents of human rights in China. But I tend to ascribe it more to his inability and the limits on him within the Politburo to push forward political reform. So he's chosen, he's stabilized the relationship with the US in large part on a variety, of, in a variety of eras, He's clearly target. he has a consensus for economic reform, but he doesn't have that with on, on political reform. So, yes, I, I would, I'm not justifying it. I would be very critical, I'm critical of what he's done, but I, ha- I don't believe it's a final uh, signal about what we can expect in the future. Um,
0: I want to get back to a word you use, and that's certainly a primary, if you had to reduce the relationship Mm. to certain terms, one that Mm. is used a whole lot in China, Mm. to a lesser extent here, is this word containment. And you used it in Mm. the opening couple sentences in our discussion this afternoon. And I have to say, as someone who grew up in the 50s and during the Cold War, Mm. um, my image of containment and what that word means is the Soviet example. And when I hear my Chinese (laughs) friends, and you don't have to scratch very deeply among Chinese for that word to instantly come out. The US is trying to contain us. I say to them, look at what went on between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 50s and the 60s. <coughs> Did you have hundreds of thousands of students going in each direction, mostly Soviets coming to this country? Did you have Americans investing billions of dollars? Did you have scientific cooperation in almost any field that you can imagine? Did you have XYZ? all? from A to Z through the alphabet. I mean, we have an enormously deep and complex and rich web of relationships between China and the United States that runs from the top at the federal level and, and their central level down to tiny little exchanges between high schools and between all sorts of things that would have been unimaginable during our relationship in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And so it really bothers me that people call what we're trying to do containing China. Because if we were trying to contain them, we wouldn't have this, I don't believe, this this terribly rich and complex, wonderfully rich, not terribly rich, wonderfully rich complex and um, integrated environment between the two countries. Do, do we need to find another word, or what's the problem well, uh,
1: here? I mean, I, I use the word effective containment policy because the U.S. denies that, <laughs> that the government denies that we're containing China. The problem is that you're right, of course, that it's a very complex relationship. There's a lot of openness and exchanges in, in a variety of areas, students going back and forth, certainly on the economic side, a considerable amount of American business in China, an increasing amount of Chinese business coming here. <laughs> but uh, as you know... Over the last uh, three years, up until this, up until this past spring, U.S. and the Pentagon and and the conservatives in the United States, especially, but then also as part of a policy that uh, Secretary Clinton embraced, have been very concerned about so-called Chinese assertiveness and then the pushback. Uh, you know, it's a pushback that's occurred. We've moved. Troops to uh, Northern Australia. We're talking with allies about moving our forces back and redeploying forces into the Asia Pacific. Uh, Panetta talked about and has adopted, we've adopted a policy of moving 60% of American forces into the Pacific. Uh, the rationale has been to reassure our allies there. But on the security side, the Policy you could say boils down to a new strategy that the government has adopted called the air sea battle plan Which again it it does look at worst case scenarios, but it's the culmination and the result of our perception that China was becoming too aggressive or too big for its britches and too assertive in the last several years so It's something that didn't exist even in the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, or certainly not in the Clinton administration. I, for example, was involved in negotiating a denuclearization, a detargeting agreement with China, where we agreed, the United States agreed, not to any longer target Chinese uh, cities or military installations with our nuclear forces. That was in 1998. The air-sea battle strategy is just on the opposite end of the spectrum. We now are planning long-range strikes by uh, stealth bombers, B-52s, variety of uh, naval aircraft on mainland China <clears throat> preemptively to prevent oh, in the event of a war. And one of the things I'll be talking about later is uh, an observation by a guy named David Gomper, the former uh, deputy director of national intelligence here, that. China also has adopted a policy of striking first, basically, to try to take out American, in the event of war or crisis, take out American carriers, American uh, missiles, and America, even American satellites. We, on the other hand, are also planning to strike first because it's much easier to strike first preemptively if you want to win. And what's happened is that Gottberg points out that we have real a textbook case of crisis instability at this point where the US is strategically needs to, in in the event policymakers here or military leaders feel that China is going to attack Taiwan or China's going to do something against American interests, there's a tremendous incentive for us to strike first. Similarly with the Chinese, it's the worst possible case right now. So the the best example of, of containment is well, there's the two, there's the redeployment of forces to the region, uh, the rhetoric that accompanied that to basically make it clear that China should, and to use a term, should not go beyond a certain red line uh, that we were setting down. But then the adoption, the official endorsement by the administration of this Air sea battle uh, strategy uh, to essentially devastate China in the event of a, a threatened attack. So those whether you call that an, a, an effective containment policy or or something else, uh, the fact is that there really is a, a very uh, s- strong preparation by the US <coughs> to uh, attack China in the event that we see China becoming too assertive. And right? That's a different kind of containment policy that we had against the Soviet Union, certainly, but it does exist, and it's sort of you can't overlook that, unfortunately.
0: So, if there is one <coughs> positive thing <coughs> that Excuse you me. think each country can do to end on a more positive note right, right. um, to reassure the other that we aren't for us to reassure them, we aren't about <coughs> containment, for the Chinese to reassure us, right. they're not as assertive and aggressive as. It has appeared, because you you would admit that there was a change, not admit, sorry, you would agree mm-hmm. that uh, there seemed to have been a change in their charm-offensive smile policy. Oh, of course, I mean, they did become more
1: assertive, no one, no question All about right. it. So right.
0: what is it that mm-hmm. each of us can do to reassure <clears> the other that we can <throat> take a step back?
1: Well, the, the that's a great question, a way, good way to end, because <clears throat> um, as a result of the increased mill-to-mill communications that uh, President Obama and President Xi agreed upon, and uh, <coughs> Defense Minister Chang and Secretary of Defense Hegel followed up on in, in mid-August, uh, uh, US Pentagon strategic planners known as J5 will meet with their strategic counterparts in China at the PLA. These are the, the actual people who do war plans, you know, who do the contingency planning for worst-case scenarios. And they'll be setting up working groups to deal with some of the core issues. And here you have military people on both sides who are very practical, have a lot in common as professionals. We often saw uh, during the competition with the Soviet Union, as you mentioned earlier, military people were among the best experts on arms control delegations. I used to work for the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, and I, I know the expertise of the Pentagon is great. So. Specifically to answer your question what they need to address is the Taiwan issue. They need the US needs to push very hard to reduce the Chinese military threat to Taiwan. The Chinese have approximately 1200 short range missiles trained on Chi- Taiwan. They have air and naval forces threatening Taiwan. They've conducted a, a lot of exercises over the last several years to intimidate the Taiwanese leadership. It's now we hear less about it now because as you know uh, President Ma uh, and even in his first term, uh, has significantly, through his policies on the economic side, has significantly lowered tensions with China. But this is the core, remains, in, as I see it, and many others do as well, the core structural issue. If we can protect and secure China, Taiwan's democracy by <clears throat> significantly eliminating and drastically reducing the threat that China poses to Taiwan, that would allow us to significantly scale down U.S. arms sales to Taiwan which would no longer be necessary and also to pull back to some extent the very aggressive uh, day-to-day reconnaissance by American air and naval forces all along the Chinese coast. China by for its part could agree to a strategic buffer around Japan and increase uh, uh, sense of security there which would lead to a legal resolution in an international body called the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea of these uh, claims, competing claims over islands in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. So I think it all starts with security professionals in working groups trying to develop solutions to essentially diffuse uh, a, a a relationship now where each side is worried to death about the other and is therefore planning for worst cases. Uh, We just, just to wrap up, we just saw a case where the U.S. pulled back from attacking Syria in favor of an arms control solution. There's a lot of skepticism about that, but the fact is that there are diplomatic mutual threat reduction measures that worked uh, and prevented war between the U.S. and Russia when it was the Soviet Union that can now be put in place and methodically worked through to prevent a a conflict, a serious conflict between the U.S. and China and we need to work in that area. So I was reassured that one of the uh, measures and areas that the U.S. and China are going to work on both from Defense Minister Chang's point of view and uh, uh, discussed in the Strategic and Economic Dialogue was a a plan for arms control and non-proliferation measures between the U.S. and China. But uh, as I was saying, it's especially encouraging that our war planners will be talking to their war planners and who better to get to know each other. It's great to have high-level visits, but they only go so far. Basically, they set the policy and everyone else does the work. And, and now we, that's what's so great about, without hyping it too much, the stabilization that's occurred since June, we now can have people who develop the war plans to talk to each other. So that would be my major uh, source of optimism going forward.
0: Well, good. And I so. hope that that optimism bears fruit. <laughs> and uh, we hope your book does well. Thank and you we very thank much. you for doing this podcast this afternoon. That's my and pleasure. For those who want more, mm-hmm. you can look at our website, and because by the time this podcast is out, video of today's talk by Mr. Gross will be up as well. So thank, thank- you again. Thank
1: you.